Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Perhaps some of you asked this question to your mom or dad that I did when I was young, the question of, as a Christian, what is the most important holiday, Easter or Christmas? Anyone ever ask that question to their parents? Well, I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> um, I did ask my mom that question. Her answer was Easter because Jesus rose from the dead. And what a great miracle. It's so spectacular. And her answer is absolutely right. It is a spectacular miracle, impossible. Uh, for someone rise from the grave, and we talk about that every Easter. But one thing that perhaps we might not realize is that Christmas celebrates a miracle too. And may I venture to say that it is, at the very least, on par with the miracle of the resurrection. If not, perhaps even exceeding the resurrection. I don't know how many of us think of the word becoming flesh as such a great miracle. And the word that we use to describe that theologians used is called incarnation. So you're gonna hear me refer to that word throughout, which is the word became flesh. And so as we look at this one verse, John chapter one, verse 14, in it, it really lays out for us the significance of this critical doctrine of faith and how it is so important to get it right. If we veer off even one degree to the left or to the right, we venture into dangerous territory. We need the incarnation. We need it to understand the gospel. We need it to understand the fullness and power and joy and freedom that comes because of the gospel as a Christian. And unless we grapple with this, I don't know if we'll ever truly appreciate nor understand the value of what it means to be in Christ. And so with this, I'd like to examine three implications or aspects of John chapter 1, verse 15 that should lead us to worship and awe. First, knowing God. Second, appreciating mediation. And third, being united with Christ. So first, knowing God. Uh, I'd like to make a couple of introductory points and comments about this idea of word became flesh. I am not going to cover every single point of this topic. It is so rich, so deep, so wide. Theologians and biblical scholars have written tomes on this subject. So I can direct you, if you have further questions or thoughts about it, to some really great works that cover this well and clearly. So this will not be an exhaustive approach to this topic of incarnation. So please keep that in mind. However, I do invite your questions. So if you do have a question during this message, I really want to ask that you post that onto, the, uh, send that onto the form that, that's there on the QR code, and I will get to that question. Second, this topic must be covered very, very carefully. The word choice that I'm going to use is very specific, and it's meant to make sure that you have a 
biblical perspective on the idea of the incarnation. Again, to veer off one way to the right or to the left has led to cult groups being formed. Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormons, they are all formed based on their understanding of chapter 1, verse 14. Arianism in church history started in the 300s, and it almost shipwrecked the whole Christian faith because Arius said that, well, Jesus is a man, but he's sort of godlike. And so how you understand verse 14 is going to define for you whether you are actually a believer of Christ or a false teacher or someone who's being led astray. So it's really critical to get this true, as well as for your own discernment of when you hear someone talk about the person and work of Christ, that you can actually say, hmm, that sounds a little off. And you know why it's off, biblically speaking, why it's in the Bible this way. Third, the incarnation does not mean that God changed or was transformed in any way. God is not a shapeshifter. He's not a transformer. You know, he doesn't go from one state to another state. The triune Godhead, which we will not cover the Trinity in this message, we will actually throughout the Gospel of John, so more to come on the Trinity, but I'm just going to make this statement of fact that God is one God, three persons, and that's what essentially, if you are a Christian, and generally if you're an Orthodox Christian, that is a right-believing Christian who believes in the Bible, you believe in a triune God. And this triune God, specifically referring to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. I'm not going to say Son of God, even though that's a really right view of understanding the title and name of Jesus. But the problem is the word Son of God automatically sort of brings us into certain patterns of um, some sort of submission and, and, and just the ordering of things. And so sometimes that's a little confusing, at least regarding this topic. So rather than saying son of God, to call the second person the triune Godhead, I'm going to use the phrase God the Son. So there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And God the Son took on flesh. Or, as Romans 8.3 says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's a good way to describe the incarnation. In other words, Jesus was not transformed into a man. It was the second person of the triune God came in the likeness of human form. Fourth, this also means he was in every way a human being. And yet, he was without sin. He wasn't merely a human body. He didn't appear human. He was human when he walked in this earth. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What the Hebrews writer is saying is that he was in every way a human being, physically, emotionally, and spirit and soul. So he was not a partial man or a half man, half God. He was fully man and yet fully, fully God. Now, how does that happen? Yes, there is mystery behind this, but understand that that's what the Bible says, so therefore we see it to be true. Again, there's a lot to say about the incarnation of God the Son. 
so many implications of this as well. We're not going to cover all of them. So I can only, in this time period, cover three. And that's what I'm going to do. So the first one, as I said, is this idea of we can know God. It is possible to know God because of the incarnation, because the word became flesh. Again, look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this idea we have seen, our senses are able to detect through our eyes. And as Jesus told Thomas, touch me, touch my hands. You know, see that my hands have been nail pierced. So there's a physical, fleshly human being standing before you. Historically, that is the case. But we also know that this idea of the incarnation is an incredible mystery of God dwelling amongst us. And that word dwell is the same word that is so often used in the Old Testament when it comes to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this object that was placed in the inner court of the temple where only the high priest could go once a year. And it was meant to be the place where God would dwell amongst his people. And that theme is all throughout the Old Testament, God dwelling with his people. It happened in the garden. God dwelt with Adam and Eve, unfettered, completely free access. And then once sin entered the world, then there was transcendent. Uh, there was this block, a, a schism, a chasm. And so that chasm would be represented by the many different ways that God would reveal himself. He would come in a cloud. He would come in a pillar of fire. And he would also dwell in a tabernacle, distant, transcendent, separate, because God is holy and we are sinners. And there is no way a holy God could dwell without uh, some sort of barrier or else he would no longer be holy. Holy assumes purity. And we all know this, once you take any type of liquid, if water, and if you pour even one drop of oil into it, it no longer is pure water. And so that infinitely more, if God is a holy God and if he dwells with any type of impurity, sin, he's not holy, and if he's not holy, he's not God. So there had to be the separation to make sure that God would never, ever be tainted by sin, and he couldn't dwell with sin. But then God does do this in a very unique way. In verse 14, we're told that God tabernacles with us. And the way he does it is that the word became flesh and tabernacles with us. The gospel writers tell us that God said, you are to call Jesus' name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel, as we see throughout that time during Advent, means God is with us. God is tabernacling with us. God is reconciling us. God is bringing us near. No longer is there going to be distance between us and God. And God would do this incredible work to make sure that we would be brought into his presence. Because of this, it is possible to know God. When you are in Christ, you see God. You know him fully. John 14, 7 and verses 9 through 10, Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. And Philip asked the question, show us the father. And Jesus is saying, haven't you been with me long enough to know that when you see me, you see the father? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So it is true. When you know Christ, you know God. You know the Father. You know his full presence. All of this is to say that it is impossible to know God the Father without knowing God the Son. You have to know God the Son. And that's why when someone asks you, are you a Christian? And you say, yes. And if you say, and they ask, well, why are you a Christian? And, you, and if you were to answer, I believe in God, that's not a wrong answer, but it certainly doesn't tell the story. It actually has to be, I believe in Jesus. I've received him, received the name of Jesus. You see, talking about God, the whole world talks about God. Everybody talks about God, but very few talk about Jesus because to know Jesus is to know God. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. And so this is the whole idea. And you cannot acknowledge God. You can't experience the fullness of God or his majesty. You can't just understand it. You can't understand his power. In fact, we'll shortchange God all the time when we don't truly understand that God the word became flesh. Well, let me just explain this for you. Just a simple metaphor. So there, imagine an ant. It's living in this colony deep in the bowels of the earth. They never go outside of the colony. They're just always in the tunnels. And what they do is they see other ants. They're all about the same size. They all lift the same leaves, pieces of leaves. There's really no one greater than this ant other than the other ants that are all maybe a little bit bigger, but not much bigger. And maybe they do compare each other as to the leaf size or the stick size of what they could carry. But in the midst of that, one thing they cannot grasp is majesty, awe, wonderment. But when they come to the surface of the earth and they stand outside and they look up to these gigantic beings called human beings, and they see these gigantic red tree, redwood trees and all the earth, and suddenly they're not so big anymore. Suddenly they're really small. Only when they could see the majesty and see how small they are could they truly appreciate majesty and greatness. This is the point of theologian A.W. Pink in commenting on this topic. He says, greatness is never so glorious as when it takes the place of loneliness. Power is never so attractive as when it is placed at the disposal of others. Might is never so triumphant as when it sets aside its own prerogatives. Sovereignty is never so winsome as when it is seen in the place of service. I hope you realize and see that how true this idea is. You know, perhaps you're new to the church or to the Christian faith. And if you come to our church, you will hear us sometimes talk about our sinfulness, how low that makes us. We don't do that to make you feel bad about yourself, to make you feel like a worm, that you're nothing, you're insignificant. The gospel is exactly the opposite of that. We believe that you're very significant because of the fact that Christ died for you. 
But the reason why we talk about depravity, sin, and we don't avoid that topic is because we want you to experience joy. And you might say, well, that's very odd. Why would you talk about all of the things, ways that I mess up and say that that actually gives me happiness and enjoyment and delight? Because it's the same idea that we think if we make everything around us so great that that's when we appreciate life and enjoy things at its utmost. But that's a complete lie. If you flatten everyone and say, we're all generally the same, we're all this high, you'll never appreciate that which is great or true. The, the best basketball players, I mean, why is Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, why are they someone you say, I love, or Steph Curry, I love watching them? You know why? Because we'll never achieve their level. If they were just like us, if they could shoot and jump as high as we could, we would ignore them. Isn't that true? There would be no one special. But it's because of greatness, and you see comparatively how low you are relative to that greatness, suddenly there's an appreciation. You say, I got to watch that game. I got to see that person score. I got to see Aaron Judge hit that home run. I got to do... There is this wonderment that comes with lowliness. It makes you appreciate life and the world. Sometimes, and tragically, it takes a doctor saying, you have six months left to live. That's when you walk outside and suddenly the leaves look dramatic. The smell of the air just is so good. And just walking on sand, even though I hate sand, actually, getting sandy toes. But if I was told I have six months to live, I guarantee you every food that I eat. And by the way, if you walk outside, there are a lot of restaurants outside. I've eaten at every one of them. And I'm so tired of all of them. I know all of them. And so for some of you, you haven't ever eaten at those. You say, that's pretty good. But when, the, when everything's flat, when I've experienced it all, it's dull. It all tastes the same. Wonderment comes, awe, majesty, by seeing I'm low. I'm a sinner. And only when we grapple with that idea, the idea of recognizing that when you are rescued because you're drowning in the ocean and a lifeguard comes in and pulls you out, and brings you back, suddenly your gratitude level just skyrockets because you're so excited for a new lease on life. Everything matters so much. It's, it's delightful. Until we go back to that same state again of, oh yeah, I experienced this again. This is the point of the incarnation. God had to condescend. The word, that word means condescension. You know, it's, it's just going beneath, below. He had to become like us. The word became flesh. God condescended so that we could experience majesty. And you will never, ever truly enjoy the life that you have, the relationships that God has given to you, the experiences, the things we see until you understand the condescension of our Savior, of our God, God the Son. But when you do, you will love him so much more. Probably, if you are struggling with a delight of God, 
it's because you've made him exactly like yourself. Or you're exalting yourself and you've made God really low. Or even if you're lower, you're still making God low. You're always the same as God, exactly the same. And when that happens, he's like anything in our lives. It just gets boring. From a new house, as great as that house is, eventually it, it's boredom. You know, Derek Jeter, he bought a home. So, okay, I'm a Yankee fan, I have to admit, and they're in the playoffs. But he bought a home in Tampa. It was like $35 million. And moved out of the home because he got tired of it. It's like this gigantic mansion. And now they're destroying it, completely leveling it, because it got boring. Even a $35 million mansion can get boring. Your house can get boring. Your new car can get boring. It's the reality of our world, our life. So condescension is so significant for us. Remember that. And it's because God condescended so that we can experience the fullness of our God. Second is that we have to understand that the incarnation leads us to appreciate mediation. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a really important little word. Actually, in the Greek, it's just one word. In English, it's two. So that. So it's a cause and effect. The effect is that the gospel, there's a mediation. Christ makes propitiation or atoning work of our sins. But the cause of it is the incarnation. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, you cannot appreciate what Christ did on the cross unless you understand that God became, that the word became flesh. And until that is dealt with and understood, the gospel won't be so rich to you, something that you delight in so much. God wasn't just some divine ruling from above, thinking, well, I'll, I'll let the commoners down there work and live their life while I eat in my castle. And It's not what he did. He condescended. He came. He dwelt. And the way he did this is he experienced everything that you and I experience. He was made like us in every respect. He ate. He suffered. He was hungry. He went to the bathroom. He cried when he was a baby. He was born. When he suffered, he really suffered. He really died. That wasn't just a sort of a, a pseudo-death with pseudo-suffering. He wasn't able to somehow put on his divine armor so that when he was on the cross, he didn't really feel the thorns and the piercing of the side with the spear. As much as you would experience that pain, he experienced it. There's not a single part of it. The only thing that was distinct from us is that he did not sin. That's it. Everything else he felt. And so because of that, he actually is the only one who could mediate our sins. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The cross and the resurrection is only possible because of the incarnation. The word became flesh. Unless he truly suffered and he truly died, only then is the resurrection valid. 
I mean, what good is a resurrection if Jesus didn't really die or he didn't really suffer? And if there's no resurrection, Paul says, according to 1 Corinthians 15, you and I are to be the most pitied of all people. We're, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. And so recognize that the incarnation is absolutely necessary for our faith in Christ. But accepting this mediation means you have to need mediation. You actually have to, again, see yourself in a woeful state. And until we see this deep in our souls that you need a savior before a holy God who has to punish sin or else he's not God. Until we know that, we won't understand the extravagant love of God. God's love and grace and mercy, all those good things about God that we describe make the most sense when we see who we are, our, our rebellion, our sin. And until that happens, we won't truly understand the gospel. So it's all linked to this idea of the word becoming flesh. Now this room, I remember when we were demoing this place and um, it took a lot of work. We, I don't know if you know, but that media booth was due to the faithfulness of some guys. We expanded that about 100% and it doubled in size. But yet we didn't lose a single seat. How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> Truly another mystery. There's still the same number of seats in this room, even though that thing doubled in size. But before we, I mean, that was a lot of work, and a lot of guys worked pretty hard to make sure this place was still operational by the time worship began today. But that's just one small little extension. We did this, we demoed, and some of you were here for that, we demoed this whole building. And wow, that was so much work. And I remember Axis used to meet right over there, our youth ministry, and it was raw studs, uh, it was cold, terrible flooring. Could we have continued meeting in that type of context, maybe knocking a few walls down? Absolutely, we could have. It would have been ugly. But what we decided to do was to take a sledgehammer and destroy everything. Did we do that because we love pain and suffering? No. It was because we wanted to make something beautiful. And it takes pain and suffering and sacrifice sometimes to really create beauty. In the same way, the incarnation is God's sledgehammer to the world. The word became flesh. He sledgehammered the world. He had to break apart everything. And it took God sending his son to break apart our woeful self-centeredness and sense of self-supremacy that always thinks, like that ant in that colony, deep in the bowels of the earth, thinking, I'm the greatest, I'm the most important. And it took God sending his son to break us out and to show us there's a whole world. It is spectacular. I can't believe I've been stuck like this. But it, we had to be completely destroyed in our self-centeredness. And it takes that to make beauty. We saw in John 1, 12 and 13 that the new identity comes and being a child of God of breaking down the old. And in this instance, God condescended when he took on flesh, took on our likeness. God the Son came, but he would have to pay an awful price, a terrible price, so that you would understand him 
and know him and love him. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word, the logos of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power upon which we live in faith is rooted on the word, the logos becoming flesh. We have to remember this price, the work, the sending, the atoning work, the condescension, all of that so that you and I could experience him forever and ever, abundantly, freely, joyously. As the old hymn goes, the cross before me, the world behind me. We have to keep forward that cross to remember all it took to make that cross possible. Without Christ condescending, God becoming flesh, the word becoming flesh, there's no way the cross is possible. The resurrection, it's not possible. It would have done nothing. This is our power, and this is our freedom, and this is our joy, and we have to live with that constantly before us, the cross before us, the world behind us. But that's only possible to actually remember this. Praise God that it's not dependent on our memory. You know, and I think I can speak to those of us who are slowly aging, is that my memory is just going. You know, it, it is, right? And you forget little things. Imagine if all of this was dependent on whether we remember him or not. That's not the case. Instead, it's dependent on the fact that we're united with Christ. Once we believe and receive in the name of Jesus, we are united with Christ. He is in us. And the incarnation makes this possible. The word becoming flesh, dwelling, tabernacle, Absolutely, the, uh, the, one of the most central themes of the New Testament, this concept of in Christ. We are always in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. We are free in Christ. We are together in Christ. We are inheritors in Christ. Every hope and joy and peace and pleasure as a Christian is possible because Christ dwells with us. That's possible because of the incarnation. I hope you see the link. It's so strong. And they're directly linked together. But know this, even though you are in Christ, and I'm speaking very specifically to Christians, you will be tempted to leave Christ. Every day it happens. As soon as you wake up, there's going to be a temptation. Leave Christ. Leave him behind. There's a hymn that many of us know, Come Thou Fount. I want to read this for you. Oh, to grace how great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to see, to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Have you ever felt prone to leave the God you love? Have you ever felt your heart wander? I can tell you, admittedly, every day, every day of every day of my life, I feel my heart prone to wander. It's, it's literally like a, a raft that's on a stream. And if you place it without an anchor, it just floats. And you don't even realize it. It just leaves. And so when you are living your life at work, at home, and you 
don't remind yourself of Christ, know that your raft starts floating, but you can't even tell. It's just suddenly a mile downstream and you don't even realize, how did this happen? We are together in Christ. And the way, the only way that we do not wander is because the word became flesh. He tabernacled. He dwells. Or as we're going to learn in John 15, he abides. He remains in us. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given you. That sense of abiding happens because of the incarnation. That Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. The power of Romans 8 is possible because of the incarnation. And so when you feel this strong urge to leave, not to leave the church, but to leave Christ, know that if you are in Christ, it is the incarnation that makes it possible that you will not leave him. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. One reality is that this wandering heart, we all are subject to it. It happens throughout our lives. And I go back to the prodigal son story. When this son, in his mind, he had the intention of completely leaving his family behind, his father behind. He said, I'm not going to be your son. He didn't put it that way. But by asking for all the inheritance right up front, he's essentially saying, I'd rather have money more than my relationship with you, father. I'd rather just be this regular guy and not your son and have all the money. So let me do that. So he goes and he spends it all. But notice what's interesting is that his identity as a son doesn't change even though he did something so terrible to the father. And then when he has this sudden awakening and says, I think I'm better off back in my father's house as a slave rather than eating this pig slop. And he starts making his way home. In his mind, he's thinking, I'm, gonna, I'm a slave. I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm, a, I'm just a terrible slave. That's all I am. I'm not a son anymore. I lost that privilege. It's gone. But what does the father do? The father runs, rat, sees him from afar because he's waiting. He runs. He wraps his arms around his son and he says, this is my son who is lost and is now found. And for the father, the identity of the son never changed, even though the son thought that he was a slave. Who is the one who defines our identity? Amazingly, it's not even me. It's God himself. So when you are wandering, when you are the prodigal, when you are leaving, when you're saying, I don't even want God, or when you are now in the pig slop, miserable in life and saying, there's no way God could love me anymore. No, God loves you even in that pig slop. But it took God, the word becoming flesh, because God saw you there, the word became flesh, dwelt amongst us, gathered you in, pulled you home and says, you're coming home with me. This is possible because of the incarnation. What a, what a wonderful doctrine that reminds us that God sent his son, but that was started and thought about from before the foundations of the earth, according to Ephesians 1. And so this whole, who says theology is boring or dull? It makes you sing 
and worship and delight in the glorious God. And what it should do is bring you to your knees and say, I need you, Lord. I am a sinner. And only then can you see the wonderment of our God and so be so delighted and your joy will increase exponentially. That's why I, when we come to this table, you remember the price paid. That awful price so that you will never forget the awe and wonder and majesty of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to this table humbled. We who were woeful sinners, rebels. There was not a single ounce of us that wanted to follow you. We just think of ourselves way too highly. And you, just like the world does, we make you so small. But in doing so, we rob ourselves of joy and delight and freedom. It actually makes us miserable to do so because to think of ourselves so highly, we have to constantly try to protect it. We do, and we fail so miserably, and then we go back and deal with guilt and fear and worry and anger. What a terrible cycle. But thank you for the incarnation. The word became flesh. God the Son took on our likeness so that in every way, he would understand us and know us and he would be mocked and beaten and torn and broken so that he could be resurrected, conquer sin and death and forever and ever. And we come to this table remembering who we are in Christ. Thank you for the mediation, for the ability to know you and for the being united in Christ forever so that we will never be forsaken. And we just want to come to this table with that type of confidence and assurance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.